Well, it's my privilege this morning to open us into a new sermon series into Colossians. So you can take your Bibles, and I'd invite you to begin making your way to the book of Colossians. And as well, you will find in your bulletins that set of sermon notes that will, I believe, be helpful for us today as we begin this study. If you peek at those notes, you'll see there's a lot of introductory material on there, which is really fitting for the beginning of a new series and this week, as we jump into this new series, it's, it is a new series, but it's kind of not a new series, and I'll explain that in a moment. Um, I want to begin by actually looking back a little bit as we began Galatians back in the fall. Pastor Jay had a few introductory comments on why we were doing Galatians at the time. I want to bring that back to memory for us. As we look at what we should preach to open the fall ministry, we realized as a church we were growing, and as you experience numeric growth, that also means growth and diversity as well. And we know that as many of you have come in more recent times uh, to Sunset Bible Church, we know there's a whole diversity of who is coming here, uh, including there are those that Pastor Jay talked about that maybe came from a background that was a little less theological uh, perhaps a church background, or maybe kind of been involved in some church things, but not really, you know, uh, sure of all the different terminology that we use. And we want to make sure that you know you are welcome here, um, and we are so glad that you are here. There's others of you who come from church backgrounds that are highly theological, uh, but perhaps just different and use different terminology and uh, speak about things and nuance things a little differently. And so, um, and at the same time, in addition to those two groups, we know there are those here who are just seeking and aren't really sure what this whole church thing is about. And as we grow in diversity, we said, you know, we want to come to a, a series of preaching where we really hone in on what do we believe and what are the things that we really, we really got to get right. Uh, you know, as we grow in diversity, there's all sorts of things that we have different opinions on here at Sunset Bible Church. Uh, we have political diversity here. We have diversity in terms of choice of schools that parents might send kids to. Uh, we have diversity in terms of what's the best place to get pizza in town. Um, all sorts of things. Uh, but at the end of the day, when it comes down to how are you made right with God, how do you have a relationship with God, uh, when it comes down to the gospel, we really we need to be crystal clear on that. And so we started talking about what does that look like. And Galatians was one of the books we looked at that says, you know, Galatians, just with such clarity, talks about what the gospel is. And in it, we saw that you can't add to the gospel. It's not about a little bit of effort that you add. It's all about what Jesus did. And the minute you add some of your own effort to trying to be made right with God, you kind of mess up the whole thing. Well, I said this is a new series, but it's kind of not. And the reason for that is back then when we were planning this year ahead, we actually saw Galatians and Colossians as kind of being together. And we're turning to a new book, but we're not turning to a new purpose. Uh, you'll see some very similar themes in the book of Colossians, uh, including themes about you can't add to the gospel. But Colossians nuances things a little differently. And one of the nuances, as we look at this topic and have clarity about what in the world is the gospel, is Colossians really takes a focus on Jesus and who is Jesus. And, and unlike any of Paul's other books, Colossians focuses in on the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ like no other. 
And so I think it'll be a really good time for us to continue really in this study that we have been in, but now turning to a new page, so to speak. So uh, that's where we're going. So today we're starting a new series, and of course we have new artwork, and I'm going to talk about that art in a, a little bit, a little bit more. But I love it in the idea that it evokes this idea that in a world of difficulty and pressure and sometimes darkness, we can have life. And not just life that's barely hanging on, but, but if you are in Christ, you can thrive even in, in the midst of pressure and suffering and difficulty. And we'll talk more about our, our artwork in, in a little bit. But I'd like to invite you to pray with me. And then we're going to do some introductory comments as we look at what Colossians is all about. And we'll jump into it. So uh, let's pray, shall we? God, we thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your word and for uh, speaking to us through it. Uh, God, we need to know who you are. We need to know, see you more clearly. We, we as people, we come with, with a lot of oh, just difficulty and a lot of baggage. And, and God, I know that in this room there is great diversity. We come from all different places and God, I don't know where each person is coming from in the room today. I don't know if this past week has been a week that has been just a week that has been wonderful and joyful or a week that's just been really, really hard and just barely walking in here today. But God, I know this, that we need you. And today, Lord, I'd pray that you'd help us to focus in on you, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, help us to be people who will see truth about you and then in response to that, to apply it to our lives, to really evaluate ourselves and to, to be open to correction. And God, we need you in this. So this morning, Lord, as we do this, as we step into this new series, just help us on this process. Help us as we come later on to the Lord's table, to the communion table, and, and as we celebrate communion today. But God, in all these things, we look to you, and we are thankful for them, and we come together as a church family to, to unite behind your, your scriptures. And so, Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus, through your spirit, amen. All right, well, wonderful. Let's, let's talk about Colossians. So if you take that study sheet in your bulletin, uh, a few things that we want to talk about before we jump into the scripture this morning. Uh, always good to talk about what is a book about, who's it written to, what was the purpose of it being written. Uh, these are important things. So Colossians, where was it? Where was the city? Where were the Colossians living? They were in a city called Colossae. It was in the uh, western part of Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. You kind of visualize the Mediterranean in your mind, and you move from uh, west to east. You'd kind of hit Italy, and then Greece, and then that Asia Minor, Turkey area right there, just kind of boom, 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 all right next to each other. And this is about uh, 100 miles from the coastal city of Ephesus, about 11 miles from uh, the city of Laodicea. That might be a familiar city to some of you. If you study Revelation, Revelation was written to seven churches in the Asia Minor uh, area, and Colossae was right in the midst of them, but there's a good reason that Colossae wasn't included in that letter when John wrote it. So here we're looking at this letter written to them. We'll talk about that. Why were they not included later on? But who wrote this letter? Well, it was the Apostle Paul. He's the main author. We have Timothy as one of the co-authors of the letter. Really, as we look at it, Paul's the driving force here. 
And one of the things that I think is really good to remember is he's, he's an apostle. What is, what, what is an apostle? Well, that word literally means to be someone who's sent. And there, in those days, were a lot of people who were apostles. They were sent ones. They were sent to places. But there was a distinct group of apostles that sometimes here at Sunset Bible Church we refer to as like the big A apostles. And these were those men who had been given the authority and kind of the, the leadership of the early church. They, were, they had the unique um, element in their life of they had all seen the resurrected Jesus. And they were given just that unique authority to say, this is what good doctrine is and bad doctrine. This is truth. This is how the church should function. And so they were leaders of the church, and it was just a handful of them. And so Paul is one of them, and he's writing from the authority of being an apostle. Paul's also writing from a prison setting. And I think that is important to keep in mind as we read Colossians, that Paul's writing this while in prison. Uh, he was in prison three times. We're not sure which time he was in prison that he wrote this, but most people think it's when he was in Rome, around 60 AD. And I, I think that's just so important because as you read this, it's not words coming from somebody just living the good life. These are words and encouragement and, and saying, keep going, press on, trust Jesus, written by a guy who's in Roman prison for his faith. Now, who's he writing to? Well, the Colossians were the believers in the city of Colossae. And one thing we got to know about the city of Colossae is at one time it had been an important city, but it kind of become overshadowed by the surrounding cities by the time that this book was written. And so the people that Paul is writing to in, in many ways are marginalized socially because they're kind of nobodies that come from a nobody city. But they're even further marginalized because now they're Christians. And so they, they have adopted in the cultural context, the wrong religion. And so they're, they're marginalized socially, but they're also marginalized spiritually, religiously, um, really looked down upon. Um, one of the things that I think is really important to note here, it's very interesting. If you look at history, Colossae and that whole region gets hit by this major earthquake around 61, 62 AD. Like right after this letter is written to them. Um, this earthquake levels several cities. They get rebuilt except for Colossae. Colossae is destroyed by an earthquake and it's never rebuilt. Tells you something about the importance of the city at that time. Uh, they don't even bother rebuilding it. And I think this colors how we read Colossians as well. As we read it, we think about one, Paul didn't know that they were about to face this hardship and this destruction, but the Holy Spirit certainly did. And yet, here, God sees them as worthy of receiving this letter, even when they don't really have that long to, to be around. Um, and I think there's a theme throughout Colossians about that our importance isn't measured by worldly standards, but by our identity in Christ. And so we see just even an element of that in the fact that these people who are about to face this tragedy and their city's never going to get rebuilt again, uh, they, God still sees them as worthy of getting a letter. I think the other thing that really should color us, uh, our, our way of reading this, is just seeing the fragility of life as we read Colossians. You don't know what tomorrow holds, do you? And while we hope for a good life and we hope for many years, you don't know. And here are all the words that Paul is writing for many of these people. Um, this is a devastating earthquake. Many of them are going to die very shortly. Uh, they're going to lose their homes. And the words of Paul still ring true, even with the future 
that's uncertain and not always pleasant. So these are good things for us to keep in mind. And that's the reason why you don't see Colossae addressed in the letter to Revelation because they're gone by the time that letter is written. So why is this letter written? Well, Colossians is a letter of encouragement. Paul has never met the the believers in Colossae. This isn't a church he started. It was actually started by a guy named Epiphras. Epiphras, I can hardly say that word this morning, but um, he was a guy who had heard the gospel from Paul. He was from this area, and he went back to his home, and he started this church. And, and he's visiting Paul while Paul's in prison. He's telling him about the faithfulness of this church, but he's also sharing about the pressures that these people face, and they have these opponents, and there's this false teaching that threatens the church. And so Paul writes them, uh, having never met them, but he writes them with uh, affection and with kindness and encouragement. Now, a lot of very similar topics are addressed here, as we saw in Galatians, but whereas Galatians kind of had this sharp tone because they had already started giving in to some of the false teaching, this wasn't the case in Colossae. So here, Paul's words are, are softer, they're gentler. They're words to encourage him to say, good job, keep going, and here's what you need to keep going. So what in the world was going on? What was the pressure they faced? Who were their opponents? What was this false teaching? Well, we don't have a lot of details about that. There's some clues given in as Paul talks about what not to do or what you don't need to be made right with Christ through here. And there's definitely kind of this Jewish element going on. Um, but we don't have a very clear understanding of exactly what was, who were the exact people, what was the exact teaching. It's very possible that as these young believers would trusted Christ and they're studying the Jewish scriptures, it could have been the Jewish community, the unbelieving Jewish community. It's saying, you don't even know how to read those scriptures. Let us tell you what this is all about. And it could be very, you know, discouraging and and be one of those things that kind of says, oh my goodness, uh, maybe we don't know anything. On the other hand, there's some things in this book that don't really fit into good traditional Jewish teaching. There's in verse uh, chapter 2, verse 18, there's this talk of worshiping angels. Um, and so there's an idea of there's some sort of mysticism going on. And now in the Greek setting, mysticism was a big deal. There was this idea of like, boy, if I could have a vision or a heavenly experience, like an out-of-body experience and get to see heaven, like that's a big deal. Or if I could like... Uh, get some secret knowledge. And so the Greeks were all about this. So there's a lot of mystic practices going on that, honestly, this is the culture these people are from. And it's probably a big pull for them to, to kind of value the things that their culture valued. So here you are. You're a Christian. You're, you're following this you know, new way of life. And there's all these people around you claiming to have these amazing visions. And you might be thinking, boy, why am I not having the visions? What's wrong with me? Am I missing out on something? Now, it could have been just Greek mysticism, but there was also several brands of Jewish mysticism going on as well. And so even the idea of worshiping angels was often seen as if you're going to have this out-of-body heavenly experience, it's the angels who have to take you there, so you better play nice with them and make them really like you. So a lot of veneration of angels going on and all that. So we're not really sure what's going on. It's possible that they're getting pressure from different sources and all different sides. Uh, But the reality here is they have pressure, and Paul is writing them to encourage them. And what's very interesting is Paul doesn't go on and on about the problem. Rather, 
Paul's focus is on Jesus. And so the theme of Colossians is really this unparalleled idea of this focus on the supremacy of Christ. And I think what Paul sees is your greatest need isn't to understand the issue more. It's your greatest need is to see Jesus and to understand Jesus more and see the greatness of Jesus and the goodness of Jesus and the sufficiency of Jesus. And so even the structure of this letter kind of shouts that your greatest need is Jesus because the focus is on Jesus. So, so as we go through, we don't know a lot, as I said, about what opposition they faced, but we do know this, that Paul saw the greatest thing they needed was to see Jesus. And, and really, that's our greatest need as well. Regardless of what difficulty you face, what pressure you face, what darkness you face, your greatest need is to see Jesus. So, here we go. We're going to step into this, and I want to read the first eight verse, verses of Colossians today. In this, we're going to see kind of four themes or four topics that become themes throughout the book. And, and what I want to do is I want to look at each of these topics today just to give us a preview of some of what's going on in Colossians. And I'll kind of look ahead a little bit to show you where some of these are. We're going to go fairly quickly. But let's read the first eight verses. Paul says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and, in, and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So there is our opening to Colossians. We see a number of things here. Paul's writing to the believers. Um, he's writing with the authority of an apostle. And though he's never met them, he's showing genuine affection for them and concern. And here's some themes that Colossians focuses on. First of all, we see in Colossians, uh, Paul's focus on their, their hope they have. They have a profound hope. And Paul speaks of this actually in verse 5 as he talks about this hope that's laid up for you in heaven now, think about what I just said about the mystics that were surrounding, whether they're Jewish mystics or pagan Greek mystics. Just this idea of all this focus on heavenly experiences. And what I say on your station is amid mystic posturing that aimed for heavenly experiences, these saints already had a heavenly component to their inheritance. Paul's looking at this and saying, hey, I know that as you hear these things, you, you know, it can really make you feel like, Am I on the right path? Like, why am I not having this? And, and he's saying, all that is just words, but you literally have something. There's something literally laid up for you in heaven. It's spatial. It's taken up space. And so don't forget that while they're all talk, you have something real already. And this is looking to the future as well. A hope laid up in heaven is future-oriented. It's at the second coming of Christ. There's hope for you. You're going to be recipients of this. But one of the neat things about Colossians is that while there was a future component to their hope, it wasn't just all for the future. There was a present-day realization of their hope as well. And Paul's going to do this in Colossians. He's frequently going to remind them of their identity in Christ. 
He's going to keep pointing to things saying, this is the reality of this blessing and this hope that you have in Jesus. It's future and it's today. Today and future. Don't lose sight of it. And so he's going to do a number of things. I'm just going to kind of read through a few things that he's going to point out to them as we go through the letter later on in this series. One, he's going to look at the fact that they're innocent before God, that through Christ they gain this innocence. They're presented blameless at the end of chapter 22. At beginning or in the middle of chapter 2, Paul's going to talk about how their debt is canceled before God and that they're under no judgment um, in chapter 3, we're going to see that as forgiven people, they're, they're um, expected to forgive. But it's not just forgiveness that they have. They also have this new honorable identity that comes from Christ as well. At the beginning here, we see their status as saints. So Paul writes to them. He, he uh, addresses this to the saints in Colossae. They're saints. They have this, this honorable status already. And it doesn't just start the, there. In the middle of chapter 1, we're going to see they're members of the kingdom. We're going to see not only they're presented blameless, but at the end of chapter 1, they're presented as holy. And they have this hope of glory. Uh, we'll see that in chapter 3, they appear with Jesus in glory, that they have a glorified state about them that they get to look forward to. We're going to see they're called God's chosen ones, beloved and holy these are all things about their current status. Other reminders about their present and future hope is that they're connected to and nourished by Christ. Uh, we're going to see in chapter 3 that their earthly standing doesn't determine their status. There's some of them who are slaves. Some of them are you know, in a higher part of society. And it doesn't matter who you are on this earth. You all have the status of heirs of God's promises. All brothers and sisters in Christ. Oh my. So going on then, we see they have a foundation of their truth or a foundation to their truth as well. So they have this hope, but how do they come about having this hope? Is it just some stubborn optimism? I'm just going to be hopeful for the sake of it? Well, no, it's not that. Was it pragmatism? I have this hope because my life is just working out so well for me. Well, not necessarily. Again, they were marginalized and as we know of their future, uh, they don't have much longer here. No, their hope was based on truth, and we need to, to see this element of truth come up in this letter. Uh, Paul appeals to this in verse 6 and 7. He talks about what they heard and understood of the gospel, that they had heard something from Epaphras, that they believed in it, they believed in these truth claims. It wasn't just somebody had an experience, and they're like, oh, that's cool, that makes me like feel better about myself. They had heard truth claims, and they they... They believed it. And Paul's going to have this emphasis in their lives of, I want you to grow in knowledge. It's important that you keep growing in knowledge. One thing you have to understand is in Colossae, they, they had a very relativistic culture. As I said, the, the Greeks loved anything that would give you a spiritual experience. Um, they, they loved ecstatic experiences. They loved some hidden knowledge. And if you offered that, you were welcome. They would just add it to their list of things as part of their, their worship. And sometimes we might approach religion this way as well from kind of a relativistic standpoint. I mean, we come from a relativistic culture, don't we? And oftentimes this comes into the church. It's like, oh, how do I determine what's good or what to believe? Well, did it work out well for me in my life? 
And sometimes we'll take advice from somebody and say, oh, that, that gave me some immediate benefit, therefore that must be truth. And that's very relative. I've actually seen people do that where they hear some voice that they end up trusting because it gives some you know, positive benefit in their life and it leads them to a place where they end up doing something completely opposite of what Scripture says. So we have to, we have to think about how do we determine if something is right or wrong how do we determine if something is true? Well, it's not just an experiential element. One of the things that we see in Colossians on your study sheet, a spiritual life's not pure mysticism. It, it does involve the heart, but it involves both heart and head. And throughout Colossians, Paul's going to implore his readers to remember what they were taught and to continue to grow in their knowledge and their wisdom. Next week, we're going to see that he wants them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and spiritual wisdom and understanding. He wants them to increase in their knowledge of God. We're going to see later on in chapter 2 and 3 that knowledge is what helps them to live right. Beginning of chapter 2, Paul's goal is that they'll have full assurance of understanding, knowledge of God's mystery, wisdom, and knowledge are treasures, they're going to be told. They were taught in the faith so as not to be held captive by philosophy and empty deceit. We'll see that in chapter 2. We'll see that putting on, in chapter 3, putting on the new self involves being renewed in knowledge. And they're told to let the word of Christ dwell richly in them, teaching and admonishing one another. So there's this idea of use your minds and and learn truth and look at what God says and, and obey it. And so it's not just a relative thing. It's not just a feelings thing. It's, it's an expression of you have this hope that's founded in this knowledge that forms faith. And then we're going to see that as they have this foundation of truth, then they are expected to live a life that bears fruit. And your study sheets in response to the identity and the hope they had, the Colossians were faithful. Paul encourages them to bear fruit and to grow despite being marginalized by social and religious status. And this fruit was ultimately manifest as love. So one of the things I love about Colossians is there's not this idea of a Christian who can just keep growing in knowledge and filling their head and not do anything with it. Like there's this idea as you have hope and faith and you grow in knowledge that it should turn into spiritual fruit, into acts of love, into action, and I think this is one of the things that we see here that Paul, throughout the letter, keeps commending them to do. He sees not only are they commended twice in this section for their love and the fruit that they're bearing, but he's going to tell them later in chapter 1 to continue bearing fruit, continue growing. In chapter 3, he's going to tell them to put to death earthly things because of their new status, and then to put on Holiness. Chapter 3, we're also going to see that they're to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then we're going to see some really interesting stuff about family dynamics and how does that play out in the family. Even when there's family structures that in the Greek society were really kind of messed up and difficult, how does a Christian live out life and bear fruit in the knowledge and hope they have? This is one of the reasons why we did the art that we did. I, I really love the, the artwork, and Felina Martins helped us with this. It captures this idea, as I said before, that 
in this life, there's, there's kind of this already not yet thing going on. And we see this in Galatians as well. There's this already not yet theme running through, not Galatians, running through Colossians, that they are citizens of the kingdom. They are heirs of the promise. And yet they haven't stepped foot into the kingdom yet. They, they still live in this broken world, but that doesn't mean you don't live under the authority of the king. This doesn't mean you don't do the things that the king wants you to do. And so there's this idea that in the midst of darkness, there's still life that happens and fruit that's born. So that idea actually came from a kid's book that we really appreciate. This was uh, recommended to me by a missionary, and this has been used for well, by a number of missionaries and kids that really struggle with this idea of, like, God took me out of my comfortable place and sent our family to this uncomfortable place. This is a little book called It Will Be Okay, and it's the story of Little Seed and Little Fox. And in this story, Little Seed just has a happy life living in a nice, warm, comfortable seed packet in the farmer's storehouse. And he just has a good life. And one day, trying to escape a storm, Fox finds shelter in, this, in the farmer's uh, tool shed and meets Seed, and they become good friends. And in the story, one day, Farmer takes Seed out of his warm, comfortable envelope and does this really mean thing to him. He puts him in the soil and covers him up and puts him in this dark, lonely place that's scary and uncomfortable and damp and, and cold. And, and Fox goes to find him and finds where he's buried. And kind of the rest of the story is them talking to each other through the dirt. And Seed is wondering, man, I thought Farmer was good. Why did the farmer put me in this situation? Until one day when Seed finally sprouts and he realizes, oh, the farmer is good and the farmer's been watching over me this entire time. And this was the very place for me to become what I'm supposed to be. I had to be here. And, you know, this is really what our art is depicting as well is, you know, God allows us to be in difficult places. God doesn't take us out of this world And sometimes for us to become what God wants us to be requires us being in a place of pressure and difficulty and darkness. You see, the idea of bearing fruit and the idea of being faithful doesn't wait for a a better day. See, in Colossians, the people were expected to actually bear fruit and not wait for, oh, when life gets better or you, you know what's coming their way. They are expected to bear fruit today, to obey God today, to to trust God today. It wasn't based in their circumstances. Well, how how is all this done? Well, this is the final theme, and really the big theme is there's a focus in Colossians on Jesus. As Paul looks at themes of truth and fruitfulness and hope and identity, all of it comes back to Jesus. The Colossians, their identity was in Christ the hope that they had was secured by Jesus. Their belief uh, was based on what Jesus had accomplished. It wasn't just in feel-good stuff. And so Paul writes this letter focusing on and declaring the supremacy of Christ. Rather than reading through all the places that this shows up, I'm just going to read one section from Colossians um, Colossians 1.15, I just want you to get a glimpse of how Paul speaks of Jesus and the focus on Jesus. And this will bring us right to the communion table. But Colossians 1.15 says this of Jesus. 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Does that sound rather important to you? That, that's a big statement. We're going to unpack that a little bit in weeks ahead, but that is a major statement that Paul's focusing on And he's saying at the end of the day, we have to have our eyes on Christ. At the end of the day, folks, anything that causes our eyes to stray from Christ is going to fail. And this includes when we make a big deal of practices or traditions, or if we focus on a particular issue or even a theological position. Sometimes we can become so focused on something, even something good, to where when we quit talking about Jesus and we just kind of become like a little kind of soapbox person that's always talking about one thing, It's not a good thing. We have to constantly be focused on Jesus. And Colossians does that for us. So I want to respond to God's word in communion today. And as we talk about the supremacy of Christ, I think we get this preview of of what Paul is going to say, what we just read. It focuses on Jesus. And we've been kind of look at this idea that that following God, it's yeah, it involves the heart, but it involves the head as well, and and it involves truth and responding to truth claims. And communion, the communion table brings us right face to face with a major truth claim. You see that on your study sheet. Communion presents us with this truth claim that Jesus is God in the flesh, and He willingly died to take the guilt and shame of our sin on Himself. The resurrection proved that Jesus conquered sin and death, and his death and resurrection are historic events with eyewitness testimony. Do you hear that? See, as we come to communion, we pass different elements around. One of them is bread, and it represents the body, and it points to a real body that suffered for us, that was abused for us, that died for us. And yet it doesn't end there. It focuses on a real body that was really raised from the dead, that Jesus was seen by his followers. And this was something that was historically accounted for by eyewitness testimony. It's a truth claim. And can I tell you, if you're going to trust anything for eternal life, you better trust a risen Savior. Because it's really dumb to put your hope in a dead person. And as we come to communion, we're not just remembering someone who died. We're remembering somebody who rose again who said, I'm going to participate in this with you when I return. So do this until I come back. So what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.26, he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's looking forward to the future hope we have stored up in heaven. And so it's a truth claim. I, I want to ask you this this morning then. Have you considered your reason for being here? I don't know as you sit here where each person came from this morning, um, your reason for being here. But I do know this. It's very easy to turn Christianity into sort of just another philosophy. Christianity isn't another philosophy. Um, 
It's not something just to agree to some teachings. Uh, Christianity is a total shift in identity and allegiance. It's to say that I'm putting my full weight behind Christ. I'm trusting him completely to make me right with God. I'm identifying with him. I'm becoming obedient to him as master. I'm pledging my allegiance to him as Lord. See, and in our culture, I think we sometimes tend to make Jesus just a good teacher. And said, yeah, he teaches some good stuff and you follow them. I really like this stuff about love your neighbor and forgive people. And if I do that, I have a nicer life. But Jesus wasn't merely a good teacher. He wasn't just wanting you to adopt his philosophy. He is wanting you to come to know him as Lord and Savior. And you see, here's the thing about following Christ is if you're here following Christ because you're thinking, boy, I'm doing this because it makes my life slightly better, or I'm hoping that it leads to a nicer, longer retirement, the reality is this, that following Christ is still worth it, even if it doesn't make your life better right now, and it's still worth it even if you don't have a nice, long, comfortable retirement waiting for you. Following Christ is worth it because it's the only thing that leads to true, lasting life in eternity. And so as we come to the communion table this morning, this is what I want you to be considering and pondering. Why are you here? What is your purpose? Are you here to have a slightly better life or are you here to follow Jesus as Lord? Because in this life, there's still darkness and there's still pressure. But there is life as well that's offered to you and hope and assurance.